The scripture for the message this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 6. The title of the message today is Fighting for the Faith of Future Generations. Deuteronomy 6. We'll be looking at the whole chapter but for now, I'm only going to read verses 1 through 9. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do it in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear Yahweh your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I am commanding you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you shall listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we believe and know that you still speak through your word. We don't just believe that you have spoken, but that you are still speaking through your word. And God, we come to this chapter today knowing that you are speaking a word to us. In this chapter, there is a clear word from God for this people today. Oh, that you would speak it, that we might hear it. Open our ears and our minds and our hearts to receive it and understand it, embrace it and obey it. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. You can be seated. A few years ago, I visited an elderly gentleman in his home. He was watching the news. And of course, if you watch the news very much, you know that it can be a little depressing. And as, as he watched the news, he began to talk about his concern for his children and grandchildren, how things would be for them after he was gone and in future generations and he seemed particularly concerned that they might lose the freedom of religion in America. What I found interesting was his children and grandchildren, for the most part, were not in church and didn't serve the Lord, even though they had the freedom of religion. See, Here's a man who's praying that his children and grandchildren would have the freedom of religion. 
what he should have been praying is that his children and grandchildren would have some religion. You understand? I'm just going to tell you, my concern primarily is not that my children and grandchildren would have the freedom to worship. No. My concern is that they would have the desire to worship. The thought that they may be persecuted for their faith is not what keeps me up at night. I'll be delighted if they just have a faith that can be persecuted. God will take care of his own. Listen, you can spend your time and energy fighting so your children inherit a free country if that's what you want to do. But I will spend my time and energy fighting for my children to inherit a heavenly country. What I want for my children and grandchildren is that they receive and enjoy all the promises of God for the redeemed. As Christians, we should do everything we can to make sure that happens. To try to do all within our power to see that our children and grandchildren inherit the promises of God. What does it look like? How do we fight for the faith of future generations? We're going to find out this morning in Deuteronomy 6. Now let me just give you a, a little bit of background on Deuteronomy so you'll understand what's going on. Moses in the book of Deuteronomy is rehearsing the covenant a second time. The word Deuteronomy in Hebrew means second law. Moses is giving the law to a new generation of Israelites. Remember the first generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness because of their lack of faith and their disobedience. Well, this is their children. This is the next generation. They are poised on the banks of the Jordan River. They are about to cross over into the promised land and begin the conquest of the promised land. So Moses is reminding them before they go of the law of God, reminding them of their covenant with God before they enter the land. And chapter five, Moses repeats the 10 commandments. And then in chapter six, Moses gives the primary command of all, the command that encompasses all the others. You shall love the Lord your God. This is what Israel must do if they are to enjoy the promised inheritance. They must love God. If they fail, they will forfeit their inheritance just like the previous generation had. And what we're going to find out in this chapter, that was not only true for the current generation that was about to enter the land, the same thing was true for their children and their children's children. If they failed to love God, they would forfeit their inheritance. But if they loved him, they would enjoy the promises of God. Now, if you and I want our children and grandchildren to inherit and enjoy all the promises of God, we must hear this word from God. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, as we look at this text, I want you to notice our concern. 
What is very clear as we look at this chapter is that God is not just concerned about the faith of the current generation. God has a concern about the faith of future generations. Now, we're going to scan through here, and I'm going to show you that clearly. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do it in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear Yahweh your God. You see it? Not just about this generation, it's about future generations. Verse 6, these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. Again, God is concerned about the faith of future generations. Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which Yahweh our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son. Again, if you just notice, God clearly is concerned for his people of future generations. This is not just about the people of the day. This is about those who will come after. Now, what is God's primary concern for these future generations? Simply put, it's this. God wants them to inherit the promises that he made to their fathers. You see, God made great and wonderful promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he wants not only the current generation, but he wants these future generations to inherit and enjoy those promises. Are you with me? Let me show you this. Verse 3. O Israel, you shall listen and be careful to do it do the law of God, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly, just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, that's God's concern that they enjoy his promise. We see it again in verse 10. Then it will be when Yahweh, your God, brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers. There again, it's about them receiving the promise. Verse 18. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh, that it may be well with you, that you may go in and possess the good land which Yahweh swore to give your fathers. You see it again. God's made a promise. He wants them to inherit and enjoy that promise. Verse 23. He brought us out from there, meaning Egypt in order to bring us in, into the land of promise, to give us the land he sworn to our fathers. Over and over you see this. Let me put these two pieces together. God is clearly concerned about the faith, not just of the current generation, but of the future generations. Why? Because he wants them to inherit the promise he made to his people. Enjoy the inheritance that he has promise them. Now, I want to say this to you. We as Christians have a promised inheritance. It's not the promise of Canaan, land of promise Israel. We have a much better inheritance. First Peter chapter one, verses three and four. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who according to His mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, unfading, having been kept in heaven for you. You see, God has promised a heavenly inheritance to His people. He has promised us something far better than any inheritance this fallen world can offer. He's promised us the kingdom. He's promised us we can be joint heirs with Jesus and inherit all of the kingdom of God with all of its blessings and all that goes along with living in the presence of God Himself. Now, we should share God's concern that future generations inherit the promises of God. You see, for God it mattered not just that this generation went into the land and enjoyed His blessing. He wanted their children and grandchildren to be people of God so that they can inherit the promises of God. And you and I should have that same concern Far more than we're concerned about their freedoms in this country. Far more than we're concerned about their earthly prosperity. We should be concerned that they be people of faith so they can inherit the promises of God. I have my first grandbaby coming. She'll be here in just a little over two months. My prayer for that child revolves around her growing up to love Jesus. I don't care if she's well off financially. I don't care if she's popular. I don't care that her life be, you know, free from hardship and trouble. None of that stuff is what concerns me. I want my grandbaby to love Jesus because I know the Bible says that if we'll seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, then all these things will be added to us. In other words, if she'll just love Jesus, God's going to take care of her needs. Doesn't the Bible say, I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread? I want her to love Jesus. Listen, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Matthew 16, 26. What good is it if they grow up and they get everything they ever wanted? They have the perfect job. They have lots of money in the bank. They have a comfortable marriage. They have 2.5 children and live the American dream and die and go to hell. What good did all of that do them? None. None. Our concern should be the faith of future generations. So, what's the first step for those of us who are concerned about the faith of future generations? Next, I want you to notice our command. Our command. The center of this chapter is the command given to love God. Verse 5, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now, 
At this point, Moses is addressing the current generation, telling them, you must love me with all your heart, soul, and might. But as we've already seen, he's concerned about the faith also of future generations. What's the connection there? Here's the connection. Because future generations loving God begins with you loving God. Let me say it to you like this. You can't pass on a faith that you don't possess. You can't teach them to love God if you don't love God. So God says, love me with all your heart, soul, and might. The grounds for this love, the basis for this love is in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. In other words, listen up, people. There is only one God. The God of Israel, Yahweh, is the only God there is. He's not only Israel's God, He's the only God, period. So, because He is your God and He's the only God, you shall love Him with all your heart, soul, and might. God is God alone. You should love Him. Heart in the Bible is not the center of your emotions like we think of it. Heart in the Bible refers to your mind or your intellect. The word soul means who you are on the inside, like your will and your emotions. Might, to love God with all your might, your strength, refers to your physical abilities and your actions. So what's he really saying? Love me with all your heart, soul, and might. He means love God with all that you are. With everything you are, you are to love God. That's where impacting the future generations has to start. With you loving God with everything you are. But what does that look like? like he shows us in this chapter loving God in this chapter he describes it in two ways first of all loving God is to serve him obediently to serve him obediently let me show you this look at verses one and two now this is the commandment the statutes and the judgments which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do it in the land where you're going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear Yahweh your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I am commanding you. You see, his intention is their obedience. Look at verse 16. You shall not put Yahweh your God to the test as you tested him at Massa, you should diligently keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh that it may be well with you. Again, the emphasis here is not just on knowing the commandment, but obeying the commandment. When God says, love me with all that you are, he means obey with all that you are. And this is important because this is not just 
an obedience that's reflected in your actions. But remember when he says, love me with all your, your heart, all your soul and all your might, that means your obedience doesn't just involve your actions, but it flows from a heart. In other words, it's your, it's your genuine desire to obey. You have the will to obey. Your emotions long to obey God. It's, it's not just going through the motions of obedience, but it's, right? It's obedience that stems from the heart. This is where the Pharisees missed it in the New Testament. Oh, they followed the letter of the law, but what did Jesus say? You honor me with your lips, but your what? Your heart is far from me. So what does it look like to love God? It means to obey God from the heart. So to love God is to serve him obediently. But there's something else here. To love God is to serve him exclusively. Exclusively. By the way, loving God, you know, we talk about loving God as obedient. Some people say, well, that's Old Testament. It's really not. John 14 verse 15 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's New Testament. So to love God is to serve him obediently and to serve him exclusively. Look at verse 10. Then it will be when Yahweh your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you great and good cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. You will eat and be satisfied. Then beware lest you forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Yahweh your God, you shall fear him, you shall serve by his name, you shall swear, you shall not walk after other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For Yahweh your God in the midst of you is a jealous God, lest the anger of Yahweh your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Verses 10 and 11 stress that all of the blessings that Israel were going to receive in Canaan, in the promised land, were a gift of God. They didn't earn any of it. God gave it all of them as a gift of His grace. But God knows His people. And He knew that once they went into the land, they didn't have to work for anything. The cities were already built. The vineyards were already planted. The wells were already dug. They just had to move in and enjoy it all. And God knew there would come a time when they would forget that all of that was a gift from God. They would grow complacent. They would begin to take all that God had done for granted. And they would fall into the trap of forgetting God. And what would happen when they forgot is they would begin to practice the religions of the other pagan peoples around them. And forget that it was God who gave it. In other words, they start looking to these false gods for the blessings they need and want. Instead of looking to God, realizing Him and Him alone is who's responsible for every good thing they have, they would begin to worship false gods. In verse 12, he tells them, look, I'm the only reason you aren't still in slavery. He knew what would happen. So in verses 13 and 14, you see it. He commands that they serve him exclusively. No other gods. Isn't that the very first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods 
before me. Now that doesn't mean I should be the first in your list of gods. In other words, when it says before me, it doesn't mean before in the sense of I'm the first. No, to put, have no other gods before me literally means in his face, before his face. In other words, don't you put new idols in my face. He, you know, he's got to be exclusive, not just the primary one, the only one. That's the point he's making here. To love God means to serve him exclusively. Notice what he says in verse 15. For Yahweh, your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Oprah Winfrey said the thing that turned her against Christianity was the thought that God said he's jealous. Now, let me explain this to you. To say God is a jealous God does not mean he's envious of anybody or anything. How in the world could God, he's God. Nobody has anything he doesn't. Nobody knows anything he doesn't. Nobody's in a higher position than he is. Just common sense should tell you to say God is a jealous God doesn't mean he's envious of anybody. When God says he's a jealous God, that means he is passionate about the honor of his name. God is saying, I will defend the honor of my name, whatever it takes. At any cost, I will defend the honor of my name. He says, I am going to preserve the honor of my name. And he warns his people. If you turn away from me and turn to other gods, I will bring you to destruction because I am not going to allow you to slander and dishonor my name. You're to love him obediently and exclusively with all that you are. I want you to think about this. This is the love Jesus displayed when he was tempted by Satan. You remember, remember that? I want you to think about this for a minute. The, the temptations of Satan were, you know, turn this stone to bread, right? Throw yourself down from the temple and worship me. The temptations all revolved around doing what would go against the will of God and worshiping someone other than God. Right? Jesus refused to do either. He refused to go against the will of God. And he refused to worship anyone but God. When we talk about loving God, that's what we mean. O love him obediently and exclusively. That's exactly what Jesus did. And that's what it looks like for you and I. Now let me bring this back to our concern for our children and grandchildren. The greatest thing you can do to impact the next generation is to love God with all that you are. Genuinely and sincerely with your thoughts, your words, your feelings, and your actions. That's the greatest thing you can do to impact the next generation. And listen, that's where it has to start. It starts with you. You can't pass on a faith you don't possess. Here's the question. How in the world can we do that? How do we love God with everything we are? Serve him obediently, exclusively. Israel couldn't. They never could pull it off. They ended up forfeiting the enjoyment of God's inheritance. So how in the world are we going to do it when they couldn't? 
Here's the third thing I want to show you in this text. Our conversion. Our conversion. Verse 20. When your son asks you in a time to come, saying, What are the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which Yahweh our God commanded you? In other words, God said, Your kids and grandkids are going to want to know, Why do we live this way? Why do we live so different than all the other people around us? Why all these rules? Why, why can't we work on Saturday? Why do we have to sacrifice these animals? Why do we obey these laws? Verse 20, what's the answer? Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and Yahweh brought us out from Egypt with a strong hand. What's the answer to why we live this way? Because God saved us. He redeemed us because he delivered us from slavery in Egypt. Now, I need you to understand something. The exodus that happened in the book of Exodus, when God brought the people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised inheritance, you need to understand, we know from the New Testament, that's not the ultimate deliverance God is wanting to give his people. The Exodus points to what would be the ultimate deliverance of his people, and it's the salvation that we have in Jesus. I need you to think about it. Their slavery in Egypt is just a picture of the slavery of all men. All men are slaves. Think about this. John 8, 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Romans 6, 17, you were servants of sin. Those who are outside of Christ are in chains. They're in bondage. They're slaves of the kingdom of darkness. Everybody. And salvation is when God delivers you, rescues you from the kingdom of darkness, and transfers you, Colossians says, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Rescuing you from that slavery. Look at verse 22. Moreover, Yahweh showed great and calamitous signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. In other words, God delivered Israel from Egypt with great acts of power. He displayed the power of God when He delivered them. And I want to give you a verse because the way we were brought out of slavery was an act of God's power far greater than any of the plagues, far greater than dividing of the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Oh, don't you see? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was God's ultimate act of power. It is the power of God reaching into the kingdom of darkness and taking people out of chains, out of slavery, and placing them in the kingdom of His Son. And why did God deliver His people from Egypt? Why does He deliver them from 
slavery to sin. Verse 23, he brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. Bottom line, God rescued his people from Egypt because he had an inheritance waiting for them. Why did God rescue us from sin? Because he has an inheritance waiting for us. You with me? So we could be his people and enjoy his inheritance. So here's what I want you to see. We love God with all that we are by serving him obediently and exclusively as a response to our salvation. You with me? Because he saved us. But there's a step further we need to take as Christians, New Testament Christians, we have to take that a step further. We not only love God with all that we are in response to his saving work in Christ, we do it as a result of his saving work in Christ. What does that mean? That means it is his work of conversion and regeneration in us that makes it possible for us to love God. See, we have something the Israelites didn't. Anybody know what it is? Say it. We have the Spirit of God alive on the inside of us. When Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send another comforter. And the word another means another one of the same kind. I'm going to come to be with you. Jesus purchased for us the very gift of the Holy Spirit of God to be with us and in us. And by the power of God in this life, we still can't live a perfect life. But in this God life, we can love God serving him obediently, exclusively. It is possible. We can do it. We can live a life that pleases God because the power of God dwells in us. So this is what I want you to see. When we talk about loving God with all that we are, we do that as a response to the salvation that God has given us in Christ, but we also do it as a result of that. It's what makes it possible. Here's the thing I want you to see. The only way anyone can love God from the heart is to have a new heart. Because your unredeemed, unregenerate heart lacks the capacity to love God. But the new covenant that God makes with his people in Christ, that's exactly what it's about. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to do my judgments. You want to impact future generations, here's where it starts. It starts with you loving God with all that you are by serving him obediently and exclusively. How are you going to do that? By the work of salvation that God has performed in you in Christ. Now, there's one more thing we need to see here. Our responsibility doesn't end in our efforts to love God with all that we are. There's one more thing we must do if we're truly concerned for future generations. And this is our calling. Our calling. Go back with me to verse 6. These words which I command you today shall be on your heart. It means memorize them essentially. Make it a part of you. Now watch verse 7. 
you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Teach them diligently. To make every effort is what it means. Make every effort to teach your children. Or to teach him what? Well, verse 6 says, these words I'm commanding you. What is he commanding them? To love God with all that they are. So we talk about teaching our children. What is it we're teaching them? We're teaching them the importance of loving God with all that you are in response to his saving work in Christ. You understand? We're teaching them that we respond to the saving work of Jesus in us by loving God, serving him obediently and exclusively. That's what we're to teach our children. Chisel it on their hearts and minds like you would chisel something in stone. That's the idea behind the Hebrew word. We teach them to love God and we teach them that we do that in response to and as a result of the saving work in Christ. Now, I, here's what I need you to catch. See, here's what some people say. Well, I, I'm, God hadn't called me to teach. I, I'm not gifted to teach. You don't, that doesn't excuse you. Watch with me. Verse 7. Teach these diligently to your sons. Speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. This is what's called a merism. A merism is a literary device that uses two words to encompass an entire category. For instance, heaven and earth means everywhere. Night and day means all the time. You'll notice he uses two of those here. He says, when you lie down and when you rise up. In other words, whether you're sleeping or awake. When is that? All the time. Right? Now, look at the other one he uses here. When you sit and when you walk. So if you're busy or if you're not busy. If you're doing something or you're not doing something. If you're lying down sleeping, or if you've risen up, awake. What's he trying to say? All the time. Talk about the things of God all the time. Whether you're sitting or walking or lying or rising, day, night, morning, evening, working, whatever you're doing, make it about the things of God. Here's the idea. God is saying the things of God, the truth of God, the faith we practice should be the central part of everyday life. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. Here's the idea. They made little leather pouches, little leather boxes. They would write this scripture on them. Love the Lord your God, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You're to love him with all your heart, soul, and might. And they would write that on a little piece of paper and roll it up and put it inside a little leather box that they wore on their wrists or either between their eyes. Now, the likelihood is when Moses wrote this, God didn't intend for them to literally wear these on. It was a figure of speech. But a lot of times the Jews did it literally. And in verse 9, you'll see it says, write it on your doorposts and on your gates. And they did that too a lot of times. They would write the Shema. That's what this verse is, Hebrew, Hebrews four and five, they would write it on the gates of the city and they would write it on their door. What's the point? 
Well, the point is obvious. You don't ever let the things of God, the truth of God, the law of God be out of your thoughts. You put it everywhere you go so that you can see it. Wear it on you like a tattoo. Let your life revolve around the faith. Let me say it like that. Your life should revolve around the Christian faith. They are to be the central and absorbing interest of your entire life. In other words, you shouldn't treat your religion, your Christian faith, as just one thing. This is what I do on Sunday. But it doesn't, it doesn't really play a central role in my everyday life. I have my church life, and then I have my work life and my relationship, all that separate. No, he's saying your faith is central to every part of your life, every aspect of your life. Now, what does that have to do with teaching the next generation? Glad you asked. How do you teach the faith to the next generation? You make it a part of every single aspect of your life. For example, read a scripture at breakfast. Pray with your kids or grandkids before they go to school. Sing worship songs together as you ride up and down the road in the car. Talk about the things of God when you're cleaning out the garage. Pray with them about every concern they have in their life. Make time for family worship and use a catechism to teach them the basic Christian beliefs. Show them what it looks like to be a Christian at the ball field, in the grocery store, everywhere you go. Make the things of God central to all that you do. I inherited my love of fishing from my daddy. You know, daddy never once told me he wanted me to love to fish. He never said, I love to fish and I, I wish you'd love to fish too. You know what? He just loved to fish and he took me with him. That's all he did. And when we weren't fishing, we were talking about fishing. He... he you know, he told me fishing stories when he was younger. I can still remember them. I still remember the story about how him and Tommy Ward from Columbia were floating the little river in a boat they had made, a boat made out of wood, and uh, a snake fell out of a tree into the boat, and Tommy stood up and started shooting holes in the bottom of the boat. I still remember the stories. You know, teaching your children the faith happens the same way. You just make the faith part of everything in your life. And then you involve them in that life as much as you can. Be so consumed with the things of God that it just naturally spills over into everything you do. Listen, to teach the faith of future generations, you don't have to have the gift of teaching. You just have to have a life that revolves around Jesus and you have to share as much of that life as you can with your kids and grandkids. I don't want you to miss what the Word of God is saying to us today. Here it is, you ready? This is the whole thing. If you want future generations 
to inherit the promises of God, then love God with all that you are in response to his work of salvation in Christ and teach them to do the same. That's it. Love God with all that you are in response to his work of salvation in Christ and teach them to do the same. By the power of the Holy Spirit of God that is alive inside of you, strive to love God with your thoughts. Strive to love God with your words. Strive to love God with your actions. Strive to love God with your feelings. Make it your goal for every single aspect of your life to be an expression of love for the God who sent His Son to die in your place. Then make your kids and grandkids a part of that life in every way that you can. Let me say it as simple as I know how. Have a life that is overflowing with Jesus and bring your kids close so it spills over on them. You with me? Listen, they may never have a high-paying job. They may never live in a big house. They may never be able to take expensive vacations. They may have to watch every penny. They may never be able to afford new cars. They may be outcasts in society. They may be oppressed by a godless government. They may be persecuted for their faith till the day they die. But listen to what I'm telling you. I'm okay with all of that. I'm okay with all of that. As long as they love God with all that they are. Because if they do, when the day comes and their eyes close in death, they will open them again to discover they have inherited all the promises of God. You want to fight for the future of your kids and grandkids? Fight for that future. Fight for that future.